Let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. Thank God for his gift. Amen. Amen. No matter what, no matter what God gives you for the rest of your life, and he will continue to give because he is a giver. We know there's several things that, that accompany, as the scripture says, things that accompany salvation. We know that our God is able to meet every need. He's able to supply. He's able to deliver. He's able to heal, to set free. And yet, there will never be a gift that you receive that exceeds the gift of Jesus Christ for all humanity. That is the biggest gift, and that is the greatest thing that we will ever have to be thankful for. We've always said this, and we know that uh, there are many things to be thankful for. Both now and in the future, there's going to be things to be thankful for. But even if the only thing we had going for us was that Jesus died for us and rose again on our behalf, we'd have the rest of eternity to say thank you, and we still wouldn't ha- it still wouldn't be enough. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes in, in knowing that God continues to give and continues to bless and continues to um, provide for his people, sometimes in that we're waiting for the next thing. We're waiting for the next thing to rejoice about. We're waiting for the next thing to be thankful for. But uh, we got enough material to be thankful for until the end of time. And I encourage you to always, as much as we are expecting that God keeps his promises, as much as our faith is strong that he meets our needs, as much as our faith is strong that he heals our bodies, as much as we know and believe that, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the number one thing to be thankful for has already been permanently accomplished. For that matter, all these other things we're thankful for have been accomplished in the cross as well. But it is wonderful to know that this gift of Jesus Christ is the greatest, most amazing thing that's ever happened to humanity. Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross and being risen again. But that period of time is the point in which all of history hinges upon. Everything hinges on that. So everything before Jesus was leading up to Jesus. Everything after is pointing back to that and pointing ahead to his return. Every bit of history is centered and focused on him. He is the center of history. He's the point of history. We know that Jesus was promised from the moment that mankind sinned. We talked about this before, but when Adam and Eve sinned and, and they hid from God, And God told them the things that would be damaged because of their sin. When he spoke to Satan, he said, and you and the seed of this woman will be at enmity. You you guys will be rivals. You guys will hate each other. And when he says the seed of this woman, that doesn't make sense biologically. It's the man that has the seed. It's the woman that has the egg. So when he says the seed of the woman, that sounds weird until you know that Mary is the one woman in humanity that, was, that had a virgin birth. That wasn't her seed. It was the seed of the Holy Spirit. But you understand that he's talking about Jesus. And he says, her seed is going to crush your head. And you may bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. That was, of course, promising Jesus from the fall of man, he promised Jesus. And so all through the Old Testament, we see leading up to Jesus. We see shadows. We see forms. We see all of this hinting and leading up to who he'd be. I bet the Israelites thought it was strange when Moses lifted up a a, a pole, a brass pole, 
almost like a cross with a, uh, with a serpent coiled around it. And as they looked upon it, they were healed of their snake bites. I wonder if they thought that was odd, but I don't, I don't think they had even a clue that what that was looking towards was how Jesus would become the curse for us so that we might be righteous in him. And by his wounds, as we look on him, we are healed. And all of this leads up to Jesus. You can't really understand the Old Testament properly until you understand Jesus. Can't understand the New Testament without Jesus. If you're a new believer this morning and you got a new Bible, I'm sure you opened it up and maybe the first thing you decided to do was start at Genesis and read all the way through. And I think every one of us needs to do that at some point in your life, probably many of you several times in your life. But if you're a new believer, I urge you, start with Jesus because everything in the old is going to make more sense with Jesus and everything in the new is going to need to have Jesus as well. He's the center. So if you just picked up your Bible for the first time this week, start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start in those Gospels and read about the Savior of humanity. Go back, and when you read the Old Testament, it'll make sense. In Colossians, last week we, we, we spoke out of Ephesians um, talking about us being distant from God and being brought back. We talked about some of these things about how he reconciled us and uh, how we're meant to be of the same heart and the same nature. Uh, in Ephesians, or sorry, Colossians here, it carries some of the same themes, and I want you to see something. Uh, we'll start in chapter 2. And uh, we're going to back up a little bit. Uh, so that you get the, the full gist of what's going on. In verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he dis disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed, triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So hear what he's saying. He's talking to a group of folks that uh, some of them are, are Jews that have gotten born again. Some of them are Gentiles that are fitting in with a group of people that are telling them, you got to be a little bit more Jewish. <laughs> You're not, you, you don't understand. Once you became a Christian, you became a Jew. So you have to do these uh, feasts and you have, to, you have to eat this and you have to celebrate this on this day. And the Apostle Paul says, all of that stuff, every feast, every ritual, Everything that was in Old Testament law is merely a shadow. But the substance, the literal Greek says the body belongs to Christ. The great thing about when we celebrate this season is a season when Jesus was sent to earth that the shadows became a reality. The shadows became a body. The word became flesh. And lived amongst us. In fact, let's read that just so you can get a clear picture. John, the book of John is probably one of the least Christmassy books there is. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
all have the Christmas story in one form or another. But John starts right out with a bang on, on who Jesus really is. And while you might not see it as, as Christmassy as maybe the other ones because it doesn't talk about the nativity scene. It doesn't talk about the shepherds or the wise men. Nevertheless, this is probably my favorite section of scripture to think about this time of year. Because what we're looking at is the reality of who Jesus was. You see, sometimes, I mean, all of these are, are so valuable. I, I urge you to read the nativity in every gospel, to read all the different accounts. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's going to transformative. It gives life. But also in John, we see something bigger than just the manger scene. We see what's really going on, the, the big picture. And in John chapter 1, in one of the most amazing and glorious sections of Scripture, he writes to those that will read this with the idea that Jesus was not simply a great man, was not simply a good teacher, was not simply a rabbi or even just a king, but that he was, in fact, the Son of God. In fact, he was the Word become flesh. He says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations say the darkness could not overpower it. Both are true. You think about this. He's saying the beginning of Jesus was not the manger. The manger, that, that, that birth in Bethlehem was the beginning of Jesus becoming flesh for us. But Jesus Christ himself has existed since before the beginning. In the beginning was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything that's been created was created through Him. So you think about what that means. That when Christmas, when we celebrate this time of nativity, we celebrate this Advent, what we are celebrating is the Creator becoming human for us. The Creator taking the form of the created. Not even the created in, the, in its perfect form, but taking on the form of the created in all of its flaws that came as a result of the curse. Now we know that Jesus was without sin. We know that He was not born into sin as the Pharisees accused him of. And yet, he was born into a body that had the flaws of humanity. He's born into a body that was not as Adam was created, but rather, just like all of us, a body that needs more sleep, a body that sometimes it gets old and dies. That's the kind of body he was born into for you. He was born into humanity. He was born into our mess. And yet he was not of the world. He was of his father. So he was the image of the invisible God come down into flesh to show us the father. To save us. We talked about this at our Bible study in Loon Lake. We went around the room and talked about what, what it means to us that the, that the word became flesh. What it means to us when, when the Bible says he'll be called. One of the names that the angel said and the prophet said he will be called was Emmanuel. God with us. What does God with us mean? 
He became one of us to show us the Father. He became one of us to bear our sin. He became one of us so that he could become a perfect high priest on our behalf. But look at this. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. If we were to skip down, because for a minute he talks about John the Baptist. But skip down to verse 14. He says, the word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He lived with us. He lived in our villages. He lived amongst us. He ate our food. He showed us what he was like. In fact, you know what? Let's skip back for a minute. We'll come back to that. But I, I want to go back to verse 9. Verse 9 says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Isn't that strange? Say, so he was in the world that he created. He was amongst people he created. And those people didn't recognize him. And it says he came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man but of God. And the word became flesh. And it dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father. Full of grace and of truth. John testified about him and cried out saying. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized or made a reality in Jesus Christ. Then it goes on and it says this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You look around, you see all over the world, cultures that in their own way have tried to find God. Whether it's a tribe in some jungle right now that celebrates with strange rituals, or whether it's an ancient religion that had a whole pantheon and a system of gods. Or whether it's our own versions. Everybody in the planet has tried to find God in their own way. The great thing about the Israelites is that God revealed himself to them. But even though he revealed himself to them, and he revealed himself through his word, he revealed himself through his, his works, his acts, his deeds, he revealed himself by his spirit, even then... When he actually showed up, they didn't recognize him. That's a problem, isn't it? I mean, the word became flesh. They were the nation that had received more of his word than any other nation on the planet. And yet when he came, they didn't know who he was. They could tell you where he was supposed to be born. They could tell you all of these facts about the Messiah. And yet when he shows up on the scene, they look at him straight in the face. He matches all of the things they said he'd look like and they don't recognize him. Why? Because they had the shadows. You know, the problem with shadows is we tend to fill them in as we think they should be filled in. You got a shadow and you imagine what the shadow looks like if it were a reality. 
They had the shadow of things to come, and they made a big deal about the shadows. But when the substance came, when the body came, when the reality came, they didn't recognize them. But there were those that did. And it says, to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. I think about Peter, this fisherman uneducated, a guy who would be the last one you'd ever expect to drop a golden nugget of theological uh, truth or revelation. But as Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He first asked him who everybody else said. And he said, but who do you say? Peter responds with this amazing revelation that you are not, you're the Messiah, the Christ. But he also responds with this, you're the son of the living God. Jesus makes a big deal out of this. The only person who's ever hinted at Jesus being the Son of God before this moment was John the Baptist. But it seemed to fall on deaf ears because nobody, there are people who say he's a great prophet. There are even some who say maybe he's the Messiah. But Peter comes straight out and says he's the Messiah and then drops something on them that nobody was expecting. He's the Son of the living God. If you looked at Jews in that day, they believed in the Messiah, but not really many of them believed that the Messiah would also be the Son of God. I mean, they believed he might be Elijah come back. They believed maybe maybe he would be a great uh, redeemer, but, but the thought that he'd be the very Son of God, in fact, that God himself became one of us, that was outside of their thinking. And when Jesus even suggested it, they got real offended and wanted to kill him at the moment. On Wednesday night, we talked about how the Apostle Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy, when they went to Berea and they went to Thessalonica, the Th- Thessalonians, um, some of them received the gospel, but many of the, the, the strong uh, Jewish leaders in the area resisted and tried to kill them. When they went to Berea, it says the Bereans were more noble-minded, for they received the word with eagerness. And they went home to check it out and, make, and see that the things that Paul was preaching were so in their, in their book, in their scrolls, in their scripture. And I think about the fact that, that they had so much tradition. They had so much knowledge of the scripture, which should have made them see Jesus. That's what happened to the Bereans when they went home and checked out the scripture. They saw Jesus. But with Thessalonian Jews looked at the scripture, they were mad and said, you're preaching another God, you're preaching another king. Their traditions, as Jesus had said, your traditions are nullifying or making the word of God without power. He says, you know what your problem is, is you teach traditions of men as if it's doctrine. It's fun to sit back and go, oh, those Pharisees, teaching traditions of men as if it's doctrine. And yet we do it all the time. We celebrate the shadows because the shadows we can fill in with our own little details. But the substance actually belongs to Christ. So God gives them these shadows. I mean, think about it. If you go through the book of Hebrews, oh, and I urge you to do it. Go through the book of Hebrews and see how in every, every chapter he talks about how the old was good, but the new is perfect. And he doesn't have to bash the old to make the new look good. He says, he says, angels, they're great, 
But to which of the angels has, has God ever said, you are my son, today I have begotten you? To which of the angels does he say this? So he says, the angels are great, but Jesus is so much better. Then he says, the old covenant, it was good. But it was just a shadow of what was to come. He talks about the fact that when God gave Moses a picture of the tabernacle. For those of you that don't know, when Moses and the Israelites were wandering around, they took up an offering. I bet the Israelites were puzzled when God told them to go door to door to their old master's houses and collect all the gold, silver, and porpoise skins and other stuff. I've always laughed at porpoise skins. That seems out of place. And you might wonder, what in the world do a bunch of Israelites wandering in a desert need gold for? Then Jesus, Jesus, then Moses tells them, you're going, you know, God tells Moses, collect this gold, collect this silver, collect this porpoise skin, collect this wood, and you are going to build a house for me. And this tabernacle was made to be a place where his presence would dwell and where the high priest could come and make sacrifices on behalf of the people and to atone for their sin. And, 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 and this would be a mobile, mobile unit because they weren't in one place, they were wandering. And if you look through the book of Hebrews, he talks about every element of that tabernacle, the outer court, the, the inner court, every little element, and the Holy of Holies. And he talks about how only one priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God really was. And he had to make sure he was clean before he did it or else he dropped dead. But as you go through the book of Hebrews, in every situation, it says this was only a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. That Jesus through his own flesh created a living way into the presence of God for all of us. Not just one guy once a year, but all of us every day, any minute of the day can go into the presence of God. Go into the throne room of grace and find help. Grace and mercy to find help in time of need. He talks about how the old priests were good. The old high priests were good, but they were flawed. We have a new high priest who stands between us and God and forever, forever makes intercession for you and me. And he's perfect. And he lives forever. And he's eternal. So there is no end to his reign. There's no end to his priesthood. All of this is wonderful. You begin to see that everything that God was doing in the Old Testament was leading to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament points to Jesus. We can fall in love with the shadows of religion and the shadows of tradition, or we can fall in love with Jesus himself. Because what happened to the Jews that Jesus first came to, many of them received him, but many didn't. And the religious leaders had become so so enamored with the shadows and they drew their own details in the shadows that they, they knew the shadows better than anyone. They knew the silhouettes better than anyone. They knew the dimensions to the centimeter. But when Jesus came, they had filled in the shadows with so many of their own traditions that when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him. You ever been at the grocery store and you lose your mom? I mean, I'm 32 now. This doesn't bother me much, but... There was a time, and that was a traumatic event. <laughs> when you see a silhouette of somebody, you see a coat, especially tough in the wintertime because now they got coats. For me, it was easier. I just listened for a Texas accent, and I kind of followed that. But it was once or twice I followed the wrong lady around for a while. 
You see a shadow and you get excited. Shadows are prone to interpretation. You might see a shadow and you think that's, or a silhouette, and you think that's the one. You might follow them around for an hour. Then you look at their face and that's not your, that's not your mom and you're, you're freaked out by it. Even as an adult, I've had experiences like this. My wife and I were in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and uh, they've got this great Egyptian section. In fact, they, br- they brought a whole uh, tomb of one of the pharaohs. They've transported it over into this building in New York City. They've got a whole Egyptian temple that's there as well. And uh, I noticed Tia was looking at, uh, you know, she was looking at this display of uh, some old Egyptian drawings. And I came up and I see this drawing that looks, it looks like a, an old wrinkled up man. And all of a sudden, I realized it's not a man, it's a lady. So I go, oh, that's a lady. And I kind of was next to Tia. I was like, that's a lady. And this girl who I don't know says, yeah, it is. And I realized that's not my wife. (laughs) She had the same shape, the same form, and I've gotten uncomfortably close to her. And when that happens, you you revert back to your five-year-old self. And I said, you're not my wife, <laughs> pointing out the obvious. And, and then I felt like I needed to explain. I said, that's my wife, you know. I'm like a little kid going, that's my mommy, you know, that's my wife. So you know what happens after that. Immediately I tell Tia, we've got a whole other section of the museum we have to explore right now. Enough with Egypt, let's move on. We've seen Egypt, we get Egypt, move on. Let's go see what the Romans are doing. It's the beauty of Jesus Christ is that you can uh, develop a whole bunch of theories on God based on this scripture and that scripture cherry-picked and wrangled together. But you can't deny that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was Emmanuel, God with us, God among us. The Word became flesh and he lived With us, we handled him, we touched him, we beheld his glory. That's amazing. It's easy to get our own theories because you know what? You might think it's just an Old Testament problem of them filling in the blanks where they shouldn't have, of them adding traditions onto the things that God had commanded them. But but look in the New Testament, in Colossians, much of Colossians, this letter was written to a group of people who were struggling because there were people among them that claimed to have a secret knowledge no one else had. It says they were taking a stand on visions they'd seen, dreams they'd had of special secret doctrine that you have to come to me and I'll tell you. And he says, you know what their problem is? They're not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Their problem is they're not holding on to the real thing. They've developed a whole system of shadows and silhouettes But the substance belongs to Christ. God was good enough to give us so much foreshadowing and uh, looking ahead to when Jesus would come, but he was also good enough to send us the reality. I urge you that every bit of doctrine you have about God, if it doesn't match up with the person of Jesus Christ, you don't know God like you think you know God. There's a whole bunch of things people say about God, but yet when you look at Jesus and what he did, it doesn't match. 
there are people that view God in such a way that God of their imagination and the God we see walking the streets of Jerusalem and the shores of Galilee, they don't match. Can you imagine if you ever wondered how God felt about you, if you ever wondered how God felt about, about the oppressed and the lowly, if you ever wondered how God felt about the sick, you ever wondered how God felt about those that were being oppressed by the devil, you ever wondered how God felt about all of these things, you look at Jesus and you see what Jesus did. So much doctrine can be fixed just by looking at Jesus. Did you ever notice that Peter said, You've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In other words, when God is with Jesus, this is what he does, because Jesus is God. He says, if you've seen me, remember, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father's nice side. That's the way a lot of people think, isn't it? Jesus is God on happy pills. Jesus is God, just really mellow and chill. When he gets back to the right hand of the Father, he's like, smite him, Lord. Do it quick. Jesus was the image of God. Much of the image of God we understand. You might look and say, well, what about the Old Testament? Seems like God has a bit of anger stored up. Seems like he's always not the nicest guy on the planet. You have to understand that in the old covenant, there was a time of atonement for sin, but there was no real covering for sin. There was no Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God himself was just and God is holy. And God was more merciful than we ever deserved him to be. And yet, people rebelled and rebelled and rebelled and then said, God, why would you let this happen? God, why did this happen? Why did, we, why did we get taken away by the Assyrians? Why did we get taken away by the Babylonians? You see, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It tells us this, that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. We were not designed to come short of His glory. We were designed to live in His glory. And so the Bible tells us that all sin have come short of the glory of God. Well, what's the end of that? What's the, what's the punctuation on that sentence? The, the end of that sentence, the end of that thought throughout the whole book of Romans and every other book in the New Testament is that what separated us from God was sin. What, what separated us from his glory was sin. And what Jesus came to do was to take away the sin so that you would no longer be separated from God. You no longer come short of the glory of God. And he bore the wrath of God on himself so that you would not have to bear the wrath of God. So all of this is a reality in Jesus Christ. And that little baby, not only was the reality of God's love for us, but in that child, especially when you see him come into his stage of ministry, when he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, after the baptism of John, he, his ministry begins. And you see, in that man, Jesus Christ, was the fullness of all the grace and the truth, of all that God is and all that God will be and all that God was, is in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, that all the fullness of the Godhead 
dwelled in him in bodily form. The shadows all became a reality in Jesus. What's interesting is that same section of Scripture says, all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus in bodily form, and in him you have been made full. That's huge. See, if those two were separated by a few chapters, we might think they're unrelated, but they're directly connected because Jesus was full of everything God was. Through him, he wants to fill you with himself. It's important that we don't let traditions of men, we don't let our human understanding of God revert to a time of shadows instead of looking directly at Jesus. You can misunderstand a lot about God when you have no relationship with Jesus. Some of we all, probably almost all of us in the room say, well, I have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus lives in me. I've given my life to him. Yeah, it's easy to leave him out of the discussion. It's easy to get so comfortable with our tradition and our religion and our doctrine that we've left Jesus out of it altogether. Was at a, a, a gathering of, of some young ministers in uh, Canmore about a year and a half ago. And uh, we invited a real father in the faith to come and speak to us and just kind of pour into us from that years of wisdom and experience. One of the things he said was, he said, when I was a young man, we had so much teaching. There were many books. I mean, come on, some of you knew, I remember how, how hungrily you gathered up those many books. How hungrily you gathered up those cassette tapes and wore them out in your car listening to sermons. I was telling some friends in Spokane how back when I used to work in the sound booth, we'd duplicate tapes, and my dad, we'd know if he was going on a little bit longer, which he did more than, more than a few times, we'd say, uh-oh, it's going to be a two-taper. And you know if it's going to be a two-taper, it's a good one. It's going to be a two-taper. Get your cassette player ready. People were so hungry for the word. They still are. We have a little, it's a little easier to get a hold of stuff now because you can just go online or whatever. But he said, we were so hungry, we were always getting new messages. He said, with every new message, the idea was this. He said, the overall feel was, if we would just get this revelation of this one thing, suddenly everything would work. There's just one key we're missing. And you get that and you go, okay, I got it together. Then another guy would come and speak. Here's the one thing we're missing. And we go, oh, we're missing that. All right, okay. And he said, what? What I didn't realize, he said, what a lot of us didn't realize at the time was that all of the revelation and all of the teaching and all of these keys without an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ meant nothing. And in fact, it doesn't work. Because Jesus said, if you would abide in me, my word abides in you. You ask anything in my name, the Father will do it for you. But he says, apart from me, he can't do anything. See, many people today, we have so much access to the greatest books. Some of the greatest teachers on the planet, you just go online and listen to them. But if friends, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ himself, 
If you are not beholding his face and seeing the glory of God reflected in the face of Christ, all the teaching in the world will become perverted and will become twisted because all you're going to turn into is instead of the substance, you're looking at the shadows. I encourage you to get good teaching. I encourage you to read good books, but without a relationship with the substance himself, they'll mean nothing to you. We celebrate this season, the word becoming flesh. I want us to wrap this thought up with John chapter 5. I want you to see a few things just as we begin to come in for a landing. John 5, verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, they testify about me, and the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time, nor have seen his form. You see how many times this pops up. We read it in John 1, no one's seen God. But Jesus explained him to us. My wife and I were talking about this a few months ago, and she brought up the fact, well, you know, Moses sees God. But in reality, even though the scripture says Moses, God talked to Moses face to face as a man would his friend, in reality, when it came time to really look at God, God had to hide Moses behind a rock. And he had to say, I'm going to pass before you. I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. And I'll tell you when you can look. And God allowed him to look merely at the train of his glory as he passed by. Moses couldn't even look at it because he said, no one can look at my face and live. You would die if you saw all of me. So all that Moses got to see was the goodness, the glory of God that trailed behind him. That everywhere he go, the Bible says that, that the glory of the Lord, the train of his robe would fill the temple. It talks about his, his, his fragrance. Even when he left the room, his fragrance remains. And this is the glory of God. But that's all that Moses got to see. No one got to look at God in the face because if they had, they had sin in them. If they looked at God straight in the face, they would have dropped dead. But it says in John 1, Jesus showed him to us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians says uh, that, that all the fullness of God lived in Jesus in bodily form. Then it says here, he says, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now let me ask you something. If he was talking to somebody that really had honored the word of God, I mean, I think there were, there were plenty of people in the Old Testament and when Jesus was walking that could say they heard his voice. Clearly. Because the scripture tells us today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He told the Israelites for 40 years, you've heard my voice and seen my works. So why is he saying to these guys, you've never heard my voice, you've never seen my form? Because they had been so blinded by their own religion that they no longer could see his form. They had been so plugged up, Jesus told them that their ears had become dull, that they no longer heard his voice. So he says, you guys haven't even heard my voice, not even seen my form. You remember that through the law, we saw the form of Jesus. We saw the shadows. These guys didn't even see that. Verse 38, 
You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who is sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I don't receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I've come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another, and you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Don't you think that I will accuse, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't even believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, he turned it back on them because they said, now we know everything that Moses had to say. We know all the law, we know all the prophets, and you're not the guy. He says, you missed it. If you'd believed Moses, you would have recognized the whole time he's talking about me. Why? Because all of these forms and shadows, they filled in with their own ideas. They're filling in with their own tradition. They're filling in with their own religion. And they're not truly looking at God anymore. They've turned it into something else. He says, if you'd really known known it for what it was, you would have believed in me. Because all of those things that he wrote were talking about me. He says, you search the scriptures. This is a jolting one for us. He says, you search the scriptures thinking in them you have life. You don't even realize those scriptures are talking about me. I'll tell you why that's jolting. It's jolting because the same thing can happen to us today. I hold the word of God as the highest authority. It is the word of the living God. It is the living word of God. Can't survive without it. And yet, if you use it as a weapon to bash other people over the head with your arguments... You use it to build a nice little house of good doctrine that you can live in and say, I'm right and you're wrong. If you look at it as a means of elevating yourself above others, if you look at it as mere dry tradition, doctrine, and religion, you'll miss what it's all about. Because all of this is pointing to Jesus himself. And you can know, just like the Pharisees did, you can know everything about the Messiah can know where he's born, can know what he's supposed to look like, but you don't know him. Jesus said at the end of time, there's going to be a group of people that come up to him and say, Lord, didn't we do all this in your name? He says, depart from me, you who do wicked. I don't even know you. I never knew you. That never is important. It doesn't say I knew you and I forgot you. He says, I never knew you. So I think most of you, you're not that group. (laughs) In fact, Probably all of you, you're not that group because he doesn't say, I knew you once, but we grew apart. He said, I never knew you. Nevertheless, it's easy to get to a point where you know all the facts more than you know the figure himself. It's easy to get to the point where you can win any argument with any Christian in town and ultimately you lose. Because there's no love in you. Jesus himself doesn't walk through you or with you. You've fallen in love with shadows instead of the substance. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians, that light will shine out of darkness. The same, same God that caused light to shine out of darkness causes light to shine into our hearts because he causes the glory of God. As we look up, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
When we look at Jesus in the face, we see all the glory of God. When we look at Jesus in the face, we see who God really is. And you can learn all about Jesus without knowing Jesus. My brother-in-law, Matthew, he's a great doctor. He can tell you everything about your physical body. He can tell you about your circulatory system. He can tell you about, you know, every little detail about why this organ works like this and why this organ works like that. But it doesn't mean he knows you. Can meet you for the first time, Jared and Dr. Deploy can come up to you and say, this is why this is doing this, this is why I'm doing this, and this is why your body does this when you do this. That doesn't mean he knows you. We can learn all these things about God. We can learn all this about Jesus and still not know him. What do you got to do? You got to come to him and abide in him. Yes, let his words abide in you. There's a difference between knowing his word and letting it abide in you. There's a difference between knowing his word like a theory and letting it grow in you and transform you and push things out that aren't supposed to be there and to divide between the soul and spirit, between the joint and marrow. Because what we need here is not more people that know all the facts. We need more people that will dig into the word of God, not as a way to win an argument, but as a way to life. That will dig in to open this book and say, I'm looking for Jesus. I'm not looking for a scripture that proves me right. I'm not looking for something, one more thing that I can argue on message boards about. I'm looking for him. And when I find him, I'm going to look at him in the face. And I'm going to say, Lord, what do you want for my life? See, we celebrate this season. The day the shadows became substance. The Passover lamb became a man. The high priest was given to us, not a flawed temporary priest, but an eternal high priest who's perfect and who always lives to make an intercession for us. We celebrate the day that when Jesus came, he started a process that would culminate in the veil between us and God being torn. And the principalities and powers and rulers of this age being disarmed. We celebrate Jesus coming in the form of man, but God himself, everything God is, dwelling in Jesus, reaching out to humanity and reconciling us through his body and saying, your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Not because God has suddenly become chill and doesn't care anymore, but because Jesus has paid the price. Please don't satisfy yourself with shadows that you can fill in with your own little ideas and traditions and doctrines. Ironically, it was a rock star that once said, religion is what happens when God walks out of the room. We know, as Sister Brownie just quoted this morning, that pure religion is not like that. Pure religion is looking after the orphans and the widows and keeping oneself unstained by the world. But man's religion is all the skeletons and the props we build so that if God wasn't here, things would keep going. Evaluate in your life how many things you've put into place that if the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit was not present in your life, things would just keep chugging on like they always did. 
If you're doing anything that could just keep going without God, you're not doing it right. If you're doing anything that can survive His presence not being in it, you should stop doing it. If we claim to be a church, we build enough programs, enough systems, enough little nice little things that create a, a structure so that if we didn't have the living Spirit of God working through us and in us, the love of God empowering us, the power of God setting people free and delivering us. If we didn't have that, the programs would keep going. Those programs are an idol. We have got to seek the face of God Himself and understand that Jesus is the substance of all the shadows. So what do we do? We throw away the shadows and we look to the substance. We throw away all, we, I mean, you don't have to throw away every tradition, guys. There's a lot of good traditions. But if it's nullifying the Word of God, get rid of it. If it's getting in the place of God Himself, get rid of it. There are traditions that God gave us that point us back to Him, and yet, if it stops pointing you back to Him, you need to stop, take a breath, and rethink. How many of you know You might think we use evergreens because of some pagan tradition when the gospel came to the Celtic Isles, but the truth of the matter is the first ones that started using it, yeah, there were pagan traditions that used evergreens just like there's pagan people that ate food before the gospel came. (laughs) Doesn't mean eating food is a pagan tradition. But I'll tell you what the preachers preached at the time, that this evergreen symbolized victory of Christ over death Because even when the season, when everything else died, he remained and kept living on. And those trees became, were evergreen. And so they symbolized the victory over death. You know, when they looked at those berries, they were reminded about the holly and the berries. The holly were prickly like the thorns that were placed on Jesus' scalp. And the berries represented the blood of Jesus himself. You could say, well, weren't those things in pagan traditions? But if you look closely, men and women of God held them up as examples of Jesus. Guys like Patrick, you know, when he found, he found a, a clover uh, that had three leaves on it. And so, oh, me lucky charms, are this wonderful? You know, guys like Patrick actually went to the people that made him a slave and preached the gospel to them. He didn't have to. He went back to the people that enslaved him and preached the gospel. And when he found one of those things, he was trying to explain the Trinity to them. How God could be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet still one. And he picks up one of these clovers and says, look, there's three different parts, and yet it's one. If you dig deep enough, you'll find a lot of these traditions point to him. But if they just become empty traditions to you, they're vain. They not only lose their power, they become something perverted. Some people, that's how they handle the scriptures. The scriptures are full of life. They're full of him, but if they don't point you to Jesus, you're looking at him wrong. I say all this today so that you will recognize and you'll go back and you will take a good analysis and examination of your life and say, can this survive without Jesus? Because if it can, it's not worth doing. Go back and say, Can I truly say, in him I live and breathe and have my being? In him I live, move, breathe, have my being. Can I really say, without him I can do nothing? The substance is Christ. The shadows are great, but they're only great if they point you to Jesus. Praise God.
I love Christmas time. I love the fact that the old became new. I love the fact that God kept his promise. Isn't that amazing? From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise in the midst of their disobedience. And no matter how many times we as humans did stupid things and rebelled against God, and, and, and just how many times we swore at his face, he kept his promise. Jesus is proof. God keeps his promise. Emmanuel, God with us. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a hope, an empty hope. It wasn't a false promise. It was real. And Jesus is the evidence of a covenant-keeping God. And every time you wonder, have I blown it? Have I gone so far? that God will no longer keep his word to me, you look at Jesus and say, if any time we should have messed this up, it would have happened long ago, but God kept his word. And Jesus, the word became flesh. All the shadows and all, this, all the tradition and all the feasts and all the celebrations became real in Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb, our, our day of Pentecost provision, our day of Pentecost power, our everything, our high priest, our living way to God, everything that he had promised, he became. And so let's look at Jesus full in the face and see the glory of God. We're not seeing the glory of God as a little trace here and a trace there. The glory of God is found in the face of Christ. So I urge you believers, today, seek his face. Look for Jesus. Don't look for all the stuff that, 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 that surrounds the, 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 the emptiness of the season. Look to him, the author and finisher, the perfecter of your faith. Look to him and seek his face like you've never sought his face before. You can get all the teaching in the world, all the books in the world. You can become the most educated Christian on the planet. But if you miss Jesus, you miss the point. Look for him find him. As so many lawn signs and ornaments say, wise men still seek him. Amen. Stand up with me.